2: Welcome to Closing Bell, I'm Carl Quintanilla, live at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Scott Wapner is going to join us shortly from Delivering Alpha with BlackRock's Rick Reeder. We'll get his take on inflation and how to play this bond market right now. But... This make-or-break hour begins with stocks making another attempt to bounce after yesterday's late-day comeback. Tech holding pretty strong here. Communication services, materials leading the S&P higher, although off the intraday highs. Which brings us to our talk of the tape. In the face of these rising rates, rising oil, negative sentiment, can stocks brush off this sluggish September and rally into October? Let's bring in Joe Terranova of Virtus Investment Partners, Nicole Webb of Wealth Enhancement Group. Joe, of course, is a CNBC contributor. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for joining us on an eventful. Day, Joe. I wonder whether or not you think, given the intraday action today, is yesterday's bounce called into question or not?
3: Well, it's the end of the quarter. So at the end of the quarter, Carl, anything can happen. Just look at oil. Oil, $95 early today settles 2% lower, significant reversal, because oil was technically overboard. So there's a lot of dynamics that are playing out in the market. Last couple of days, small caps are back. Small caps have been brutal over the uh, last quarter. So a lot of positioning going on. I think you have to now look forward into Q4 and say to yourself, is there a catalyst ahead of us? What would that catalyst ultimately be? And I think it's earnings. And I think it absolutely is the catalyst that can restore the prevailing bull trend for the equity market. We need technology, which has seen a lot of earnings revisions higher here as you march towards the end of the quarter. And that's somewhat inconsistent to prior seasons. Um, It's going to be technology that's going to have to lead us back higher to resume the prevailing trend. So it's all about earnings. Do
2: you think we've already passed the period by which we should have been warned A preseason. Is that still yes, going on?
3: Without question. Generally, as you move towards the end of September, once you hit Labor Day, you usually bury those negative revisions into the headlines coming back from Labor Day. We didn't see a lot of that. And actually, we've seen positive revisions so far for technology. Somewhat surprising.
2: Yeah. Nicole, I wonder whether or not earnings inflect positive. Uh, We reset here a better and better setup. Maybe some we get lucky on some surprises regarding a strike or a shutdown. And then best seasonality of the year. (laughs) You're like, I hope so. I laugh (laughs) because
0: I'm like, where to start? It is so interesting because when you think about the major indices, earnings season in October, is it going to be good enough to excite market. So we got blowout earnings from NVIDIA last quarter. We didn't even see that much movement. Instead, you saw this underlying response from names similar to NVIDIA, maybe to play them up a little. So when we think about technology earnings mid-October, can it carry the major indices into the end of the year? But we still have this distinct bifurcation, 490 other names. When we look at the index on a whole, when we think about 2024 earnings, just to pick on them a little bit, we were looking at Lululemon earlier today. We see no movement compared to that of Peloton with this partnership rebrand intent. And it's because if you looked at earnings expectations for 2024 for Lululemon, we see the softening of the consumer. We're talking about the stronghold in the stickiness of inflation. We are not pricing in these incremental cuts until now, maybe the back half of 24. If we need earnings to pull us forward, are they really happening? Are we gonna hit that 10, 10% year over year expectation? Because seven isn't gonna be good enough to hold us through. And, and so how do you reposition then into the end of the year?
3: Well, I, I, I think the, the earnings catalyst is for the fourth quarter. I think I agree with you. When you look into 2024, you have to see a softening economic environment that's going to call into question when we look three, four quarters out that you'll be able to get the double digit earnings growth. I don't know that you're going to see that. I do think you set up for a little bit of a chase for performance, though, in the fourth quarter where money managers who have been behind all year, money managers who are generally equally weighted in their strategies are gonna look at a lot of the mega caps and if they have strong earnings and are off to the races once again, I think people will chase them. That could lead, by the way, that could lead to a critical inflection point in the market.
0: I agree with you so strongly in if you can't beat them, join them, might be part of the mentality in Q4. The same time, you might see this pickup up in Purchase into small caps, just on a a price basis, also corporate bonds. So if we think about, we went into this year with these deep recession expectations. So for 18 months now, you've seen CEOs make decisions based on recessionary expectations. And so when we think about moving down even in... Uh, that investment grade bond sector all of a sudden you're not thinking about the same credit environment that you're generally thinking of the surprise or the shock to it and so when you can pick up yields coupons clipping at 7% and then think about that mark-to-market performance of an active element in the bond market next year starts to play out very differently and so I think that's again where this repositioning might not just go to beat them unless your mandate of course is specific to equity. So you're
2: saying best telegraphed recession in a very long time, and corporate treasurers have had a lot of time to prep. And, And same with the consumer, would you argue that? Because that's the other side of this, is that until now, who needs to finance? You've got tons of excess savings, but when that actually dwindles away and they revisit the financial market, so to speak, financing cars, homes, uh, consumer living—that's when the sting really happens.
3: And I, I don't think it, it's the it's the uh, residential real estate that's the big issue, mm-hmm. because ninety percent of mortgages are, are below five percent. But to your point, I think you're going to see a lot of people riding bicycles. And obviously, I'm kidding (laughs) in that sense. But it it is the auto loans. And you're going to see the maturity on a lot of existing uh, auto debt that's going to be very surprised when they go back. Uh, To me, the only way, as I said, the, the economy in 24 is going to weaken. And the other thing that I think is critical for investors and the viewers to think about is maintaining the perspective that you need to position towards quality. Quality as a factor has returned once again. Quality as a factor is outperforming the S&P. So if you want to own corporate debt, you want to stay high up in quality. If you want to own equities, you want to stay high up in quality. And Carl, I think that's the reason why you've seen all these mega cap technology consumer discretionary companies year to date outperform, is because they're the very nature of what quality is.
0: But you're also seeing some of them sit at these oversold levels for an extended period of time, which is some indication that there's a little bit of wiggle room here. So the flight to quality continues to seem pretty concentrated across Apple, Meta, Alphabet. And so when we see that return to quality also broadening, I think we have a bit more confidence in this run into the end of the year. It is, though, a lot about earnings expectations for next year. And I think this is where there are a lot of headwinds in the fourth quarter, also, you know, some enthusiasm that one could have because you have such a concentration in the major in in these major names. But it's hard to understand exactly where to put money to work today for next year and beyond. And that's the nature of the consumer, the retail investor versus those of us who are running a specific strategy or mandate. So living on that consumer side, that's, I think, where you're also going to see some of these technicals not move. And, and that plays into expectations on the back half of the, or the back quarter of this year
2: is any of this conversation relevant until the rate picture kind of moves out of the bull's way
3: um, I, I listen I think what's going on in the treasury market is less about inflation and and more about heavy speculation first of all I mean that's clear to me um, it's it's very easy right now to speculate against bonds. Um, being short the treasury market is an easy trade. It's a layup trade. You don't have the foreign buyer demand that you previously had from China and Japan. You've got this increased in supply to fund the deficit, I think $500 billion alone in the, in the last week. You have the Federal Reserve that says, hey, we still think the economy is a little bit too strong. So they're not, to your point, on, on cuts. They're pushing out the potential for cuts. So it's a layup to me right now to push up against uh, the Treasury market and expect that yields are going to
2: back up in the near term. That seems like the easy trade. So you're, you're, are you also the view that this move has been largely technical? It hasn't been mashed by break-evens or inflation products?
0: A- yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also just the, the – when you're in this every day, you, you see the Fed's dilemma. We're at above-trend growth. Powell was very straightforward when he said we are going to need a period of below-trend growth, and at the same time, it's we know the reacceleration that will happen at this moment in time if they were to start moving rates lower. That is all indicative of the stronghold of the higher for longer messaging. It also, though, the, the the length of time, the duration we've been talking about the recession has a lot to do with why those of us who speak about this every day talk about the shallowness of this recession yeah. because it doesn't have that same shock and awe mentality where we see a credit crisis, where CEOs are shocked and have to lay off. We've actually seen so much incremental movement and then we saw a lot of multiple expansion in certain areas of the market this year and so now we have this hyper focus on earnings going into next. That's a hard positioning to, to perfectly play out for us next year when we're so interested.
3: And I I also left out the fact that we're in the middle of QT. So while not an active seller, they are certainly allowing those uh, maturities to roll off the yeah, balance sheet. Well,
2: Diamond's been talking about it for a long time, and now we're beginning to figure out exactly why. Uh, Joe Nicole, thank you. Great to see you both. Let's get to our question of the day this afternoon. We do want to know what will have the biggest impact on the next Fed decision, government shutdown, rising oil prices, or PCE inflation data. Just go to CNBC closing bell on X to vote, and we'll get you the results later on in the hour. Now, let's get over to CNBC's Delivering Alpha, where Scott Wapner does join us today with BlackRock's Vic Reader. Hey, Scott.
4: Hey, Carl, appreciate it very much. Rick's sitting right here. Uh, Thank you for coming to us right off the stage. I appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me. So I just saw rates, 10-year, 459, where it currently sits, but they've been backing up, obviously. Are we going to 5% on the
5: 10-year? Listen, I think you have. we have to get better data. I mean, we've got a core PCE print that's going to come out. It's going to be super important. I think that number is probably going to be a softer number. You can't tell with one individual number. And then we're going to get into next week. We're going to get into the payroll report. We're going to get into the JOLTS data that's going to show job openings. Those numbers need to be supportive because the Treasury is issuing so much paper that the markets need to absorb a lot of this paper. So do I think we can back up a little bit from here? I still think you can back up a bit more. Are we going to see five? I don't know. But I still think you can get a little bit of backup. And then, you know, we're going to get into next year. We're going to be a different, I think, a different paradigm. Do you think we're close to peaking? I think so. But, you know, you have to buy into the fact that this Fed wants to bolt down that inflation is going to be durably softer over time. So could they hike another time or more? They could. My senses they should be done. But uh, but you know, listen, could you back up a little bit more? I think you could.
4: All oh, right, this is interesting. So you say, my senses they should be done. Yeah. Are they done?
5: Listen, I, I've learned in my career, invest relative to what you think they're going to do, not what you think they should do. I think they should have been done before. Listen, I think they want to. I think the Arthur Burns dynamic is important to them. I think the idea that, gosh, we're going to make sure that that employment is not going to pressure service inflation higher. We want to make sure that wages are not going to be excessive. So I think they're going to want to see a little bit of time, and then they're going to to watch the data for a period of time. I mean, the
4: reference you're making is that Powell doesn't want to make the mistakes of the 70s. You take your foot off the gas too soon, and then you're forced to come in with a bigger bazooka, which then puts everything on the
5: table. Correct. And and listen, I think today, I mean, the interest rate tool is not nearly as effective as it used to be. I think we're witnessing what happens today. When you move up interest rates, the pressure you put on things like commercial real estate the local banks, and you don't have the same impact on a service oriented economy that uh, like it like it used to be when it was a hard asset economy but listen i think they're uh, they still believe that tool can be uh, can be helpful to bring inflation down
4: you mentioned something a moment ago the massive amount of issuance coming on the market ken griffin was on the network within the last you know couple of weeks saying it's a real risk higher real rates yeah. for much longer as a result of the issuance coming in and who are the buyers going to be yeah i've heard more people talking about that you were on the stage yeah. that room over there talking yeah. about the same thing is that a yeah. real risk do people appreciate how high real rates might be for as long as they could be?
5: Listen, I mean, I think, you know, when you actually break down, I mean, you think well, we used to issue, we're issuing 330 billion T-bills a week, a week. And by the way, that number's going up. It's going to be 343 billion in the next couple of weeks, and it's going to 373 by the end of the year. We used to issue T-bills at zero or 1%. We're issuing now at 5.5% to buy Treasury bills to clear all this supply. What happens is the, the government, what's going to eat up all the fiscal spend in the country is going to be obviously military spend from a discretionary side, but then the debt service is significant. And by the way, for the next year, nobody's going to run under, no, no politician's going to run under, let's bring the debt down. So we're going to be in what is it, you know, it's a bit of a challenge. And the, and the cost, the cost of the debt service of the country is going to be significant for the next few years.
4: What's it mean for the markets then?
5: Listen, I think. I think the markets, the technicals in the markets, the equity market can absorb these higher rates. You know, I was talking about it earlier on stage. I don't think people realize we're getting $330 billion a week of Treasury bills. we get this week $134 billion of coupons, almost $500 billion a week. The equity market, the IPO calendar after Instacart, after uh, Arm, is $20 billion year-to-date. Year-to-date. We're getting $500 billion in fixed income and there's, what, $800 billion of equity buyback today. The technicals and equities are pretty amazing relative to relative to the bond market so listen i think the equity market can hold in okay and i think next year you can still get an eight to ten percent return in equities really even even the fact that you've got even with higher
4: real rates i I,
5: I think so but by the way when you strip out the seven stocks i know you talk about it all the time the multiples on equities people talk about where equity risk premium. you know you're 16 multiple when you take seven stocks out the earnings yield while it's uh, you know, relative to 10s, it's not that attractive. Relative to history, it's actually not bad for most of the e- equity markets. So I think equities will do their job. Like they did this year, probably not, but I think they'll be okay. Are they going
4: to be carried next year, equities, when I say they, by the same stocks, the mega caps? You say you know the equal weight S&P, yeah. you look at the small caps. Yeah. The bears will say that that's not where the, the, the cheap part of the market is that's where the problem in the market is and that shows the overall weakness of the market not where the opportunity is
5: so we you know we debate this all the time you know if you take those seven stocks or you take tech generally if you actually look at the free cash flow generation and your ability to continue to grow I actually think those stocks and by the way when you break down the equity buyback a huge amount of the equity buyback comes from these big the big tech companies so I think you really need those companies, big tech, to continue to do well for the equity market to do what it's going to do, and then you make some decisions. There's some places in equities, healthcare, defense, where valuations are pretty reasonable on what are stable businesses, great ROE, that I still think those will do well. But I think you still need those big tech companies, particularly in the era we're going to spend, the CapEx spend in this country, AI and otherwise, is is in and around technology.
4: And you think those stocks, technology specifically, can continue to go up at the same time that rates do?
5: So, I, like I say, I don't think rates are going much higher than here. And but I, I think mean, even if they into, stay near here, yeah, I NASDAQ's been I, yes, weak I, yes, as yes, they've backed up. Yes I, think, yes, I think they continue to do well because the amount of cash flow they're creating. And again, you get in that technical condition, there's actually just not that much. If you Think about, I, I talked about the equity buyback. If you think about you want to run a balanced portfolio today, you can build a fixed income portfolio with an awful lot of yield. And then chip away at some equities and there's just you know the technicals will continue to support it
4: what do you think of energy the oil you know 94 bucks in in the neighborhood yeah are talking know, about 100 again what do you think
5: yeah my senses we're in and about this range my sense is we're probably getting close to the peak in energy some of those stocks though were pretty reasonable i actually like some of the refiners the service companies are actually pretty reasonable in a portfolio and you're trading at multiples that are not terribly high, even if you assume that energy's going to come down from where it trades at. Those,
4: those valuations are pretty reasonable. See, people look at you, generally speaking, as a fixed income person, but you're head of the global allocation team, yeah. which is why you think so hard and speak so smartly about equities um, a, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. When did the first rate cuts come?
5: So I think they got it. So, you know, Steve Leisman says something I think is dead right. I think, they're, I think the Fed's in no mood to do it anytime soon. I think you've got to see some durably lower inflation as well as start to see some pressure on uh, unemployment. And then I think they're going to do in the second half of the year. And the thing that he said that I think is right, if inflation, which we think is right, is going to come down, we think core PCE by the beginning of the year is going to be under three. Let's say you've got a Fed funds rate that is in and around five and a half, for argument's sake. You've got real rates. If the economy's slowing, as I think it is, and inflation is moderating, that real rate is pretty darn restrictive. To just get to what would be a normal restrictive real rate, you'd have to start bringing the rate down. And I think that's, and Chair Powell talked about his focus is on real rates. If that is right, which I believe is right, they're going to have to start bringing that rate down to be sympathetic to where, where inflation is next year.
4: Recession or no?
5: So I think we're slowing for the first time. I actually think you're seeing a slowdown in, but. Boy, when you, when you add up all the pieces of the economy, you look at the spend we're seeing on the infrastructure, you take CapEx, you take consumer spend, albeit slowing. Listen, could we have a technical recession after tremendous nominal GDP for three years? It's possible, but I don't think it's going, I don't think you're going to see anything deep. And you know, it's always interesting when people for months are talking about we're going into a recession, it's, it's unequivocal, we're going into a recession. When you break out the component parts and add it up and say, gosh, it's pretty darn hard for the U.S. economy without some exogenous shock, to have that sort of draw, sort of drawdown, particularly when you've got savings in this country and deleveraging that's taken place over the last few years.
4: You can be you know, that confident about that comment with the lag effect still so unknown?
5: So I think the interest rate, I know I've talked about it, the interest rate tool is unbelievably blunt. And it, what it gets at, when you lift interest rates as much it gets at commercial real estate, it gets at local banks, it gets at what you're seeing today, the lower income strata in the country, which is part of why I think the Fed should stop. But actually, if you look at the other parts of the economy, 70% service oriented economy, it's not like 30 years ago, we had a hard asset financed economy. The big companies that spend on capex are the big tech companies that are free cash flow positive, don't need to borrow. Banks, large banks are asset liability matched. Come, people have locked in their mortgages. When you lift the interest rate, it gets at only a targeted part of the economy and actually doesn't get at much of the economy until you get, you know, you keep moving. It'll have, I'm not saying it won't have any effect, but it's so blunt as a tool relative to what it was years ago. And you think about companies used to borrow on the commercial paper market on the front end and finance M&A and capital expenditure. Now they term out, now they fund out the yield curve. So it just doesn't have the same impact that it, that it used to. So yeah, I think the economy can work through I think
4: it. The last time I had you on was when you guys announced the Flexible Income ETF. Yeah. The BINC, yeah, B-I-N-C. The We've needed our Binky, yeah, so, need the Binky a little bit so last so year in the stock market.
5: Yeah, so I was kind of to bring it up. I, you know, I, we launched this CTF. We're creating 7% yield, and I've been doing this for 36 years, I hate saying that in the public, but I've been doing this 36 years. You don't have to take a lot of interest rate, you don't have risk, you don't have to take a lot of credit risk, and you can create a 7% return by buying investment-grade credit, agency mortgages, using the front end of the yield curve. Pretty attractive. I mean, it's pretty attractive. You've never really had that before. You used to have to buy emerging markets, high yields, to get 4 or 5%. You can get a 7 now, and so if people think about their portfolio I'm going to own equities. I'm going to own private credit. I'm going to own other things. Boy, if you can get a pretty safe six and a half to seven, like it's pretty uh, pretty good for fixed for,
4: income. For those right. who say you know, reach for duration now. Yeah. That's the best play. You say not so much. Short, much shorter end.
5: Yeah. I mean, I, we've been extending out to the three to five year point of the yield curve because when the Fed starts moving, that'll be your fulcrum. The curve will steepen out. Yield curve will steepen out. You can extend a little bit. But listen, to lock in rates today when you get this much supply of Treasury paper coming and you've got a Fed that's in no mood to start cutting today, so I don't think we're in any race today.
4: Right. I appreciate your thanks time for, very much. Thanks for having me. Good catching up with you. Rick Reeder uh, here at Delivering Alpha. Carl, I'll send it back to you.
2: Always good, Scott. Thank you. That's our Scott Wapner. Uh, by the way, do not miss Scott sit-down with Pershing Square's Bill Ackman. You can catch that live on Overtime this afternoon, 4:15. Eastern time. We are following a developing story out of Washington today. Emily Wilkins is here with that. Hey, Emily.
6: Hi, Carl. Well, of course, the whole Congress is really trying to figure out how to potentially avert a shutdown that is now scheduled to start on midnight on October 1st. Yesterday, you heard House Speaker Kevin McCarthy say that Republicans need to have some measure on border security be attached to a stopgap bill to prevent that shutdown. And the Senate is starting to listen. You have members today that are beginning to discuss adding an amendment to the Senate's bill that would address some policies over border security. Senator John Cornyn, uh, after having a small meeting with a couple of his Republican colleagues on the potential change, came out and told reporters that what they're focused on is who is basically let into the U.S. You know, a lot of immigrants will come up to the southern border, they'll be processed, and then they're allowed to go into the U.S., some of them to await trials and court dates to see if they can be granted asylum. That is one big area that Republicans think that's of concern to them, and that they're considering adding to the CR. But, 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 it has to get Democratic bias. That is one thing that senators were very clear about. They don't want to have a government shutdown. They want to be able to move their bill through the Senate and through the House. And at this point, it's just not clear if that's going to be happening, but it's certainly something that's now being considered.
2: Uh, We will see how it moves the needle across the hall, if at all. Emily, thanks. Emily Wilkins joining us in D.C. today. We're just getting started. Coming up next, uh, Franklin Templeton CEO Jenny Johnson will join us live from Delivering Alpha. We'll talk about her outlook for the economy, the Fed, and where stocks may head from here. We're live at the New York Stock Exchange, close to session highs with yields down across the curve. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC.
7: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
5: Picture this. It's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor.
2: Welcome back. 33 minutes left in the trading day. Let's get a check on some of the top stocks to watch as we go into the close. Christina Parts and Nevelos is here with that. Hi, Christina.
8: Hi, Carl. Well, CarMax is having its worst day in a year after a profit miss from weaker used car demand. Revenue also fell more than 13 percent from last year as the company saw, quote, persistent widespread pressures across its industry. You can see shares are down 12 and a half percent right now. Shares of chipmaker AMD though are up about 5% today after Microsoft chief technology officer shared that Microsoft was working with AMD and quote, they're making compelling GPU offerings and will become more important in the marketplace in the coming years. He made this conference at a code, uh, these comments at a code conference just uh, last night. AMD's new AI GPU chips are set to launch in December as an alternative to Nvidia's GPUs. Shares up 5%.
2: Uh, Definitely helping out tech today. Christina, thank you. Stocks are trying to get back to session highs this morning. NASDAQ's up more than 1%. Joining us ahead of her panel at Delivering Alpha today is Jenny Johnson, President and CEO of Franklin Templeton. Jenny, it's great to have you. Thanks for the time.
9: Thanks for for having me here. I
2: know your view is that uh, the markets may have overdid it with the the soft landing chatter earlier in the year. That is, the the financial laws of
9: gravity still apply, right? Right. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> but I, I do think we're, um, you know, I, I think the equity markets right now is, is kind of a bond story, right? You know, we've seen the 10 year uh, at, you know, 4.6. I think it's kind of an indication that people think it's not up and then down. It's kind of up in a plateau. And if, you know, the, the cost of cash becomes more expensive and equity markets represent future earnings, um, I think, you know, we were due for a little bit of a correction in the market and some volatility. Right.
2: If corporates have had time, though, to adjust to that coming uh, wall, and if, and if consumer balance sheets have been able to pare down some, some debt, where do you think the stresses will appear to the degree we get them?
9: Well, I think that... Um First of all, I, you know, I, I do think we are in for a soft landing. I think this is being managed reasonably well. But I think actually the the 10 year may reflect a longer term story, which is just the story of the massive debt that we have. You know, if you look back in 2007, I think it was we had about nine trillion in debt. Now we're over 30 trillion in debt and about 25 trillion of that has to be funded by, well, the Fed owns 25% of it. Uh, Japan is the largest foreign in, uh, holder of, of U.S. Uh, treasuries, and that's 1.1 trillion. Uh, you know, and, and, and this year's deficit is going from last year's 1 trillion to 2 trillion. So that gets added to our debt and that has to be financed. And so, you know, you gotta make sure that there's enough buyers out there Uh, Japan is seeing inflation. So maybe if if rates start to increase, maybe they won't buy as much Treasury. We've already heard the story of China being a a little bit softer. So they're not likely to increase. And I think that that could potentially have, uh, you know, just if you have a lot of supply of Treasury and not enough demand, you're going to see prices go down and yields go up.
2: Yeah, the supply, demand and balance, definitely a story for us lately. I do wonder how you view client interest in stocks versus, say, alternatives, which I know have been a big priority for you. uh, Private equity, secondaries, infrastructure, real estate. How, How is that competing with what might be a classic return to stocks when the when the picture got more benign?
9: First of all, the one thing that holds true at all times is people should have a diversified portfolio. I think any time you get away from that, that's where people get in trouble. But what I like now is, is first of all, you are actually getting paid to be in the fixed income market. Uh, and, you know, whether it's it's uh, high yield, that's 9%, or if you could actually withstand... The illiquidity of private credit, you can get better uh, credits uh, at anywhere from 11.5%, 12.5%. That's like an equity yield. Uh, so that's why the bar for equities has increased. Love secondaries. You've had just, a, again, a supply and demand uh, issue, which is you had $6 trillion deployed in private equity and only about $150 billion deployed in secondaries, and you're sitting there with... Uh, with LPs who are over allocated into these markets for a variety of reasons. uh, And they need to be able to get get some of it out of their current investment portfolio to make room for new uh, cash calls or capital calls. And the way they do that is they go to secondary providers like Lexington Partners who then buys it at a discount. And they're seeing some of the best discounts uh, they've seen in, in their history, and again, that's that's not a reflection of the quality of the assets. It's really a fle- reflection of not enough secondary managers out there. Right.
2: There's also the ongoing debate about whether or not alternatives have been democratized enough for the average investor to understand uh, whether education efforts are out there, whether they're just easy enough to get in
9: and out of. So they are illiquid. That is a fact, and uh, it's great if you're an institution and you can deal with the illiquidity. But there are excess returns in the alternatives market. It's an illiquidity premium. And it's important. And I, I, I make this akin to when my grandfather got in the mutual fund business, the average investor couldn't have the excess returns of the equity markets. They didn't mm. have access to that until people came up with a mutual fund. Well, we're at a very similar inflection point with the alternatives markets where we've seen more and more companies wait longer to go public. So the private equity markets have grown. Uh, Banks aren't lending like they used to, so private credit has grown. And those excess returns are only captured by really the wealthy. So we have to think about creative ways to responsibly bring that to the average investor. And I think there's some interesting things that that, uh, we can do, but it really requires education. It's also why I'm a big believer that people should use financial advisors because they have to understand the risk of illiquidity. Right.
2: Well, we're talking about it right now on CNBC. That is is a start. Uh, Jenny, enjoy the conference. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Uh, Jenny Johnson, Franklin Templeton. Thank you. Still Thank to come you. today, Workday stock is down, uh, down nearly 9%, in fact. A top analyst, Brent Thills, here to break down that move, talk about what it means for the rest of the cloud space. That's coming up after the break. And as CNBC celebrates Hispanic heritage, we are sharing the stories of influential Hispanic business leaders with you. This is Shopify's general counsel, Jess Hertz.
5: Given that it's Hispanic Heritage Month, one of my most profound mentors
7: was uh, Justice Sotomayor. I was able to clerk for her when I graduated law school when she was on the second circuit. And I remember all that she taught me,
5: not only from an academic, how to be a good lawyer standpoint, but from a human empathy standpoint. And really paying it forward is an important part of how we all partake in a community.
2: Shares in Workday sinking today after management lowered its outlook for subscription revenue growth. Our next guest is staying pretty bullish on the name and says investors should consider buying the dip. Let's bring in Brent Phil of Jeffrey's talk about uh, the stock, Brent, which kind of wiped out all the summer's gains. Um, it sounds like you're pretty confident in manage- management's response, though.
10: Yeah, Carl, this is a, a great franchise. Uh, they gave conservative guidance, and we think uh, the fundamental position of Workday is in a great spot you have a a new CEO, uh, Carl Eschenbach, and a new CFO, Zane Rowe. And I call them the two best co-pilots you could have. Uh, Carl is one of the most inspirational leaders in software. Zane was the CFO, United Airlines, uh, worked in the airline industry. He knows how to navigate turbulence. He did set the guidance conservative, but we think it's a bar that he can clear. And this is exactly what you would do as a new management team. If you and I started at Workday, we'd set the numbers low so that we can clear the bar. So it's just a classic case of a new team coming in, want to ensure the bar is low. We think, again, it's basically an oligopoly between SAP Oracle and Workday. They're executing uh, very well. And we still believe the stock can grind to $275 a share, so we're, we're buyers on on this turbulence.
2: Uh, 275. We got a bounce right on the 200-day here at 202. Does it does it call into question uh, any re- resilience in enterprise software? Are you on the lookout now for, for tape bombs going into this earnings season?
10: I think overall demand is pretty good. We had the AI hype cycle and you had stocks sell off. The IGV is off 7% off of its high this year. That's the software index, the IGV. And we, we think the AI hype got a little too strong. And, and I think reality has settled in that AI will be a slow takeoff, not a quick takeoff in software. Like we've seen in semis, it's been a fast takeoff there. It'll be a slow, gradual uh, uh, you know, uh, approach in, into this, into 24. So we think the setup for software is looking good. We're going into the seasonally strong fourth quarter uh, overall demand uh, looks looks like things are, are bouncing back. We're at Intuit's analyst day today, who it's talking about a more resilient, small, and mid-sized customer, uh, given the rate hikes that we saw last year. So everything we're seeing in our work uh, is suggesting things are stable, valuations have come off, the AI hype is, has come off the top. Right. Uh, it feels like a, a pretty good setup for the group.
2: That's interesting. You know, I, I keep thinking back to McDermott's comment earlier in the year at SAP about elongated sales cycles that got us all worried for a moment. You don't think we actually revert to that period of worry, do you?
10: Not at this point. I mean, I think that a lot of the rate concerns and a lot of the, the jitters we saw at the beginning of the year, we've worn through that. And I think it's just, uh, you know, Bill McDermott's a great executor, one of the best guys in the field. Like, he can he can cut through that. And I think a lot of software companies are realizing how to get through some of these, these hurdles. And so I never never say never in terms of, hey, could we see another leg down here? It, it feels from, again, everything we're seeing, including real-time data out of, you know, the number one SMB player, it. they're saying the small and mid-sized customers are stable, the enterprise demand signals look pretty good. So it feels good. So I think if we're gonna see a, an issue in software, it's probably gonna be more execution-related than macro-related. At, at this point, again, it depends on where rates go. If rates keep going higher, we may have an issue. But right now, uh, we don't we don't see that in the data that we're we're, we're uh, looking at.
2: Yeah, uh, definitely open some eyes today. Uh, we'll keep our eye on it with your help, Brent. Thanks for the time, uh, Brent Thill. Talking some workday this afternoon. Uh, still to come, we're going to track the biggest movers as we go into the close. Christina Partsonevolo standing by with that, Christina.
8: Well, Carl, the mean king is back in the spotlight, and one chipmaker's recovery is taking longer than expected. Both those stories next.
2: Just about 15 minutes till the closing bell. Let's get back to Christina Parts and Nevelos for a look at some key stocks to watch, Christina.
8: Well, let's talk about Micron. Although off earlier lows, the shares are still down about 4% after a mixed Q4 earnings report. The memory chip maker has called a bottom for memory prices. But the road to recovery is moving slower than anticipated. On yesterday's earnings call, I was listening in, management said they still need inventory levels to come down. They are still going to be impacted uh, low double digits by a ban in China. And they do anticipate free cash flow to remain negative until the second half of the year. Chewy co-founder Ryan Cohen, also colloquially known as The Mean King, is taking over as CEO of GameStop. He's no stranger to GameStop. He already holds a 12% stake in the firm and was executive chairman. In a statement from the company, they said that Ryan Cohen will not be taking a salary. Shares are down one and a half percent. Carl?
2: All right, Christina, thank you very much. Last chance to weigh in on our question of the day. We asked you what will have the biggest impact on the next Fed decision, government shutdown, rising oil prices or simple PCE inflation data. Go to CNBC closing bell on X and we're going to get you the results after this break. Let's get the results of our question of the day. We asked you what will have the biggest impact on the next Fed decision. The majority of you did say PCE inflation data. Interesting debate as to whether or not the Fed looks through oil prices. And, of course, we're going to get that data on PCE tomorrow morning, one of the most important prints of the week. Coming up next, your earnings setup. Nike reports in just a few moments. We'll get you a rundown of what to watch when those numbers hit in overtime when we take you inside the market zone. in the closing bell market zone, our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. We're going to react to altimeters. Brad Gerstner saying that Google has blown the lead in the race for AI dominance. And Courtney Reagan shares what she's watching when Nike reports earnings in overtime today. Speaking of which court, we talked earlier this morning about how many different pictures uh, Nike needs to give us,
7: whether it's the consumer here, China or something else. Yeah, I think and we want to hear a little bit of everything, right? We always want to hear about everything. Expectations, though, I think overall are pretty muted going into the report. It's the fiscal first quarter we're going to hear about here today. And analysts point to a choppy China recovery, lower apparel spending in China as well well. Those are continued concerns. Remember, China makes us somewhere up between 15, 17 percent of Nike sales, but over 20 percent of profits. And then there's also worry about conservative orders from wholesale partners that are still working to control their inventory and prepare for potentially lower consumer spending here in the U.S. too. Investors, though, also watching margins. You might remember last quarter, Carl, profitability was pressured by higher product and freight costs, and higher markdowns. Currency fluctuations also could have an impact on the quarter. The dollar was a tailwind in the beginning of the quarter, but then a headwind for the second half. If they give guidance, it's usually going to be on the call, so we'll have to stick around for after the report to get a little more, more details there.
2: We, we talked all week long, Courtney, about this survey over at Jeffries mm. about sp- those with student loan debt and how they're being cautious about spending uh, going into holiday. And they did cut Foot Locker at the time. And on a relative basis, they were like, you got to look to the TJXs and the Walmarts of the world.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at that survey, I think it was something like 54% said that apparel would be one. Of the top things that they would cut, and then somewhere around 50% said that footwear would be next. And so you think about so many retailers that sell those product categories and who potentially could be hurt the most. And then if we're also seeing some potential continued weakness or at least concern out of what's going on with Nike's business, and you know that about 64% of what Foot Locker sells is Nike, you got two cross currents going on there uh, for Foot Locker or a retailer that's selling all sorts of apparel and footwear, and then a brand specifically uh, that is not as strong right now. As it has been in the past.
2: Um, Costco, I know, was earlier in the week, but they did give us some good color on the cadence of consumers' mindset. Uh, They talked about Christmas already underway. You talked about your own shopping getting underway. I just wonder whether or not that fits with some of the the survey data that we've seen, the Deloitte numbers looking at maybe not as much growth this holiday as we've seen in years past.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, we all talk about inflation, and inflation certainly still plays a part in that, both in sort of what we're going to see for those total numbers. you know inflation is going to be a part of it. Suppose sales rise, they have to rise above the level of inflation. That's key, but also what it means for overall consumer spending and how much we're willing to spend. And I think what consumers say in those surveys at the beginning of the season and then what they actually end up doing can sometimes be two very different things. I think not everyone is like me and has already started holiday shopping here in (laughs) August and September when they're surveyed. And perhaps things can change a little bit in the months to come. But I think overall, there is definitely more caution going into this this season just because of all the unknowns we've been talking about all day, all week, all month from the student loans, of course, the still uh, rising interest rate environment that we're sitting in and just all of the other pressures that consumers, frankly, have really fought through for years now. And I, I think at some point you might just say enough is enough and there will be a limit to that discretionary spending.
2: We'll see what happens. Obviously, gas prices, employment, so many other variables affecting uh, the consumer mindset right now. We'll see what Nike says in a few minutes, uh, Courtney Reagan. Let's get to Mike Santoli. Uh, Mike, we'll talk about alpha in a moment, but I do want to know whether or not holding yesterday's bounds, 42.38. We get PCE tomorrow. Uh, Yields
1: giving us some cover today. A little bit of relief. Uh, the pressure is off, obviously, from the bond market. I do think that, um, you know, it's still tentative. We, we certainly knew we were very oversold coming into this period. We know the seasonals uh, kind of get worse before they get better, probably. Uh, I do think, though, that we're able to kind of mark our fears to market when you get some of this economic data. So weekly claims coming in, GDP revision, nothing radical. You had the economy you thought you had. Uh, and as long as we don't have that kind of indiscriminate, messy sell-off, in bonds. We can find our levels, though we're still below those, you know, August lows. So there's, there's work to do. I think until you get about 4,400 on the S&P, nobody's necessarily going to say uh, it's about to be believed. Some of the bull bear sentiment of survey
2: data today. Uh, Mike Bull's uh, lowest since March. I wonder, did, do you feel like that yeah. was reflected today at the conference? Is risk aversion really the, the, the
1: primary theme that you heard today? I would say, in general, people think there probably are other shoes to drop, whether from uh, some of the tumult in the credit markets, whether it's from the lagged effects of what's going to hit the economy. Uh, but almost universally, though, people are kind of using that presumption as uh, an anticipation to pounce. So there is a sense out there that the world is giving you more opportunities in the way of safe yield that lets you take risks in other interesting areas. And that the markets in general have perhaps uh, become a little bit maybe more difficult, but more interesting in terms of trying to pick your spots. Uh, In terms of sectors, Mike,
2: that are doing well this afternoon, consumer discretionary is up one, materials up one. It kind of reminds you of the story that some had hoped to see play out, and that is that other elements of the S&P would make up for maybe uh, artificial
1: intelligence sentiment topping. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I do think that some of the hard-hit areas when you did have this rate scare, some of the cyclical groups did give up a lot of the outperformance. But they haven't really uh, kind of unwound their advantage relative to super defensive sectors. So I do think it's reassuring. Semis, of course, another story out there you like to see as a a risk appetite gauge. Core PCE tomorrow might be uh, one of those things that can be a trigger one way or the other, I do think. Uh, that we're now back in a more comfortable zone of evaluating the data as opposed to just worrying uh, that people are just selling off their bonds so fast. Mike,
2: glad we had a chance to talk before the close. Mike Santoli at Delivering Alpha as we finish out the session to the Gallup about 123. SP, and p close above 4,300. We're just about there. VIX below 18. That's to the closing bell. Let's get to overtime. Morgan Flinnan and John Ford.